kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. Unfortunately, there is no Miss Jeannie K again this week, but with me is the best producer money can't buy, which is good because after two years, I'm still not paying him. Hi, Ferry. How are you this evening? I'm doing good. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's been an interesting week, but uh, we're not even going to do that. We're just going to skip right to Alex. I'll see if I can get hold of him. Okay. So the first thing we're doing in the grand tradition of last week is we're going to do the CASA update first. Which is really, really good because um, <coughs> I never know when I'm going to lose power. Hi. Good evening, Alex. Good evening. Good evening and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 6-13-2016. How are you this week, Alex? Good, but it's just Monday. That's very true. <laughs> so what is been exciting this week? Um, well, not so much. Well, okay, yeah, not so much this week, but uh, at the end of last week, we picked right. up three more co-sponsors to HR 2058. Awesome. Which is great news. Um, and I'm going to read their names off. Okay. Uh, because that's something I can do. Um, <laughs> there's not a whole lot to this week's update, honestly. Okay. Um, but, uh, so, uh, if you live in the 48th Congressional District in California, uh, take a moment to thank Dana Rohrbacher. Uh, if you live in the 9th District in Georgia, take a moment to thank Doug Collins. And if you live in Pennsylvania's 5th District, 5th uh, Congressional <laughs> District, uh, Glenn Thompson deserves a thank you letter from you. Uh, all of these, of course, being uh, U.S. representatives. Uh, and we have a simple easy to use engagement up for that on our site. Um, awesome. So uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. And I've heard there've been, a, there've been posts around the social medias 
um, people are uh, <clears throat> setting up meetings with their uh, Congress members, and uh, I suspect we will see uh, more co-sponsors coming um, coming this week. So, um, so yeah, that's always good news. Yeah. And uh, just to kind of reiterate, I feel like we've kind of beat this thing to death, but you never know who's <laughs> who's listening. So um, it's always good to point out that um, you know signing on as a co-sponsor for this. First of all, right now it's measurable. Mm-hmm. Um, we can see sixty-three names as co-sponsors, and 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 that's that's always a good thing. Um, you know that means that. It's a great way to show that we're getting support for changing the predicate date. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that, uh, you know, at the moment, uh, we can't really do this for the Cold Bishop Amendment, um, which is equally important and, and will, uh, you know, when the time comes, we'll be able to see that vote. But for right now, um, you know, this is very helpful and at least. Uh, gaining some support and, and, and sort of demonstrating that support to other congressmen. Right. Um, so uh, it, it, it is still very important that people support H.R. 2058. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's always, I always like starting the update with good news yeah. um, because yeah. there is unfortunately some bad news out of West Virginia today. Um, This has been an ongoing issue. Um, West Virginia has been looking at a tax on vapor products. Actually, I need to double check my dates on this. I want to say it was February that we put out our call to action on this. Right. Um, Let's see. And it's been kind of... um, Oh, wow. I don't have any West Virginia posts in here. That's very strange. Um, We did have a West Virginia call to action, and I want to say it was back in February. Um, There was a 7.5% tax on vapor products, or maybe it was 7.5 cents per milliliter. Um, Whatever it was, the the proposal has changed like three Mm -hmm. or four times until we got what we got today. Right. Um, and there were other attempts at getting this passed that never really um, gained a whole lot of uh, attention publicly, um, and, and they, were, they were crushed pretty quickly. Um, unfortunately, the state of West Virginia has a huge gap in their budget, and uh, they are looking for Actually, one of the, the one of the things that a delegate said in today's hearing was, um, the governor made it clear that he was not going to pass a budget without a budget that did not contain some sort of new revenue streams. <laughs> um, and I guess that you know what that I, I mean. I'm not the tax policy guy, but right. I, I guess you know an interpretation of that could be that you know the state has just cut spending from everything that they could afford Mm -hmm. and so you know really the only thing left is to tax new things or come up with new revenue so 
it's, it's situations like that that are very difficult. You know, we saw this with Kansas last year. I mean, yeah. these, first of all, these taxes on vapor products, they solve the problem on paper. Sure. But as we're going through, you know, next year, you know, as these tax, as these taxes become implemented, um, we're going to see that what was written down is not necessarily what's happening. Sure. Um, and so uh, it's, yeah. yeah. So that's where this came in with West Virginia. Um, <clears throat> uh, it is a, uh, I don't even have it in front of me. I believe it's back to seven and a half cents per milliliter. And there's also like a 12% wholesale tax. <laughs> Um, I, I'm going to have to read up on this, okay. um, but uh, uh, let me see here. Um, I really should have had this open before I came on the air. <laughs> I apologize. Um, it, it, and suffice it to say, it's 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 actually a lot worse than what was originally proposed, oh, yeah. um, and something that uh, Paul Blair pointed out in a blog post uh, on Americans for Tax Reform. Yeah. One of the provisions in here is that he didn't put it in there. Hold on. I have this somewhere. Okay. You know, what's ridiculous is these taxes never turn out like they plan. And it's, it's almost a worldwide phenomenon. Um, when you, you see taxes on, um, well, I guess this is a sin tax, just like a soda tax would be called the sin tax, but I don't, it, it defeats the purpose because it's not really, I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I, somebody else has used much better, much more refined language than I'm about to, but okay. um, it's, it's essentially that, you know, you're, you're basing an, a revenue stream on a tax that's intended to discourage people from using that product. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it definitely defeats the purpose. If the purpose is to allow people to stop smoking real cigarettes and start using electronic ones, then why would you tax it? If, you know, unless you didn't really care <laughs> about anything but your money. So, yeah. unfortunately. Okay. So I have, I have the bill in front of me. And so starting on July 1st, an excise tax is levied and imposed on sales of e-cigarette liquid at a rate of 7.5 cents per milliliter. Um, and yeah, this goes into effect uh, in less than 30 days, which is kind of shocking. That is. Um, and there's some other language in here. Um, so this part's particularly concerning. Uh, no wholesaler or other person may purchase e-cigarette liquids from any seller not approved by the tax commissioner. E-cigarette liquid mixing kits and cigarette liquid e-cigarette liquid mixing kit components shall be taxed in accordance with the amount of e-cigarette liquid in milliliters 
that can be produced by or from the kit or components thereof as determined by the, the tax commissioner. I want to I say this again. In less than 30 days, mm-hmm. that's, this, this starts. Um, this is, that's nuts. I, I, don't, the, I, I don't know what the... <laughs> we have to look through the bill here and see if they laid out a very efficient process for the tax commissioner to approve <laughs> of all of these companies to sell into the state of West Virginia. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is a pretty haphazard money grab if, uh, if we've seen one. Um, so, uh, yeah. And just a little bit of background. I, you know, was talking to some other people about this and Mm -hmm. this is like round four or five of this tax bill. Um, despite it not showing up on our blog, I think I, I know why actually, because the tag, I had tagged this West Virginia, but for some reason it doesn't show up on our, our blog when you search for that tag. Um, right. but it, it is in there. Um, so, it, you know, when we originally put this out, um, yeah, that was what, four or five months ago. Right. And, it has just come back and been, you know, it's been quashed a couple of times. It's changed right. a couple of times. Um, it's hard to say that this was steamrolled through, mm-hmm. but that's essentially what they did. I mean, this is just not, this, this, there's, there's very little consideration being given to businesses here. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, to be fair, there was sort of a good, there was a track record of this thing getting defeated right. uh, over and over again. And the last thing that we put out, it wasn't a massive call to action. It was over the weekend and uh, because actually uh, West Virginia went back into session on the 12th. They were, it, was, right. they were reg- it, was, it was regularly scheduled to go back into session on Sunday. Right. Um, <clears throat> and that's when the House Finance Committee met and uh, passed this bill through the committee. Um, but uh, we sent out a, a very quick call to action for people living in the districts to call their uh, representative that was on the committee right. and urge them to oppose this e-liquid e-cigarette tax. Right. Um, so at this, at the end here, happened very quickly. And <clears throat> clearly, you know, after you make these arguments over and over and over again, Mm-hmm. These are these are this is not new information for the West Virginia legislature that this is actually going to cost the state money. You're not going to raise what you expect to raise. You're going to be shutting down businesses. You're going mm-hmm. to be, you know, pressuring people to to stick with cigarettes or go back to smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, they've heard all of this before. They've heard it four or five times before. Right. Um, this is a blatant disregard for all of the good quality information that they had been presented with. So, um, yeah, disappointing day for West Virginia. And I hope that, um, I hope that 2017 affords the legislature and advocates in West Virginia, the opportunity to repeal this tax. Yeah. 
No, it, uh, they don't really want to pay attention to the fact that they're not really going to make much money from this. It's just not a money-making thing. No. At all. <laughs> and, you know, Pennsylvania is looking at a 40% wholesale tax. Um, that may not be, I don't know, that it may not be as, I don't think it is as bad as um, West Virginia, but, <clears throat> you know. Pennsylvania's got a lot of border counties and a lot of border cities, so, um, yeah. you know, it's... It, it's it, is, <laughs> it is funny to me that people think that everybody's just going to shop within their own borders. I mean, hasn't New York proven anything to these people? New where? New, New York. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, we don't. In, in we don't know anything beyond our own geopolitical boundaries. Why, <laughs> why would we consider what other states have gone through? Yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. <sighs> wow. So, yay on HR twenty fifty eight though. That's that's good. That's moving along. Yep, definitely a uh, step in the right direction. Um, I'm I'm absolutely positive that people would probably be interested in some more FDA news, but um, I don't, I don't have anything other to add um, than uh, the regulations are still horrible, mm -hmm. um, and on July 26th, everybody needs to make sure that their um, their vendors are selling e-liquid bottles that are uh, compliant with the. Um, Child Nicotine Poisoning Prevention Act of 2015. Yeah. Um, that means child resistant caps that are consistent with the, compliant with the um, U.S. Code of Federal Regulations. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, what else? <laughs> I, f I feel like there's there's something else more exciting that I, that I could share, but uh, <laughs> I... Uh, yeah, I, I go ahead. I was going to say maybe we'll just enjoy the off week cuz I'm I'm sure it's going to get weird. You, you think <laughs> you think now isn't weird. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, you're right. It could get stranger. Yeah. It can always get stranger. So, I guess that's it for this week then, Alex. Yep, for now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you for everything you do for us, Alex, and have a nice night. Likewise. We'll see, Thanks. See you next week. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Well, that's, that's happy news. Not. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I didn't know if I was going to speak about, uh, yesterday what happened in Orlando, which was horrible, basically. It was an all-out attack on a group of people who are just being people for no logical fucking reason on Earth. And a lot of people jumped to the conclusion that guns are the virus. And 
if guns are a disease, they're probably also part of the cure. Um, when I say that, I know it offends people. There are going to be people who tune out and people who hang up, and that's okay. Um, if you are gay, lesbian, transsexual, omnisexual, whatever you are, you probably have a target painted on you. I would urge you to go online and check out the Pink Pistol Brigade and see what wisdom they could offer you. And there's not much else I can say. I think that was good. I didn't say too much. I didn't get too emotional. I didn't cry and yell and scream at the injustice of it all. Because it really was a horrible thing. There isn't a lot you can see. No. One no, lunatic has wrecked loads of lives and yeah. killed many. Yes. What can you say at this point? <sighs> okay. Um, let's talk about something more cheerful, huh? Let's let's talk about the DEA. The DEA wants inside your medical records to fight the war on drugs. The feds are fighting to look at millions of private files without a warrant, including those of two transgendered men who are taking testosterone. Marlon Jones was arrested for taking legal painkillers prescribed to him by a doctor after a double knee replacement. Jones, an assistant fire chief at Utah's Unified Fire Authority, was snared in a dragnet pulled through the state's program to monitor prescription drugs after someone stole morphine from an ambulance in 2012. To find the missing morphine, cops used their unrestricted access to the state's prescription drug monitor program database to look at the private medical records of nearly 500 emergency services personnel without a warrant. Jones was arrested along with another firefighter and a paramedic on suspicion of prescription fraud. I got a call at work from the police chief who I know and work with. Jones testified before a state Senate committee last year. He said, we think you have a problem. You're taking too many medications. We need to make sure you're no longer a threat to the community or yourself. So we're doing this to help you. Jones described in tearful details what happened next. There were three police officers pounding on the door. They had a warrant for my arrest and they were going to take me in. He said, it was the middle of the day on my front doorstep in front of my wife and daughter. I'm handcuffed and stuffed into a police car and they haul me to jail. Jones was hit with 14 felony counts, but all of them were later dropped. Now the Drug Enforcement Administration wants that same kind of power, starting with access to an Oregon database containing the private medical data of more than a million people. The DEA has claimed for years that under federal law, it has the authority to access the state's prescription drug monitor program database using only a, quote, administrative subpoena. They are unilaterally issued orders that do not require a showing of probable cause before a court like what's required to obtain a warrant. In 2012, Oregon sued the DEA to prevent it from enforcing the subpoena to snoop around its drug registry. Two years ago, a U.S. District Court found in favor of the state ruling that prescription data is covered by the Fourth Amendment's protection against unlawful search and seizure. But the DEA didn't stop there. It appealed its ruling to the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco and has been fighting tooth and nail ever since to access the Oregon files on its own terms. The case 
pits the full weight of the Obama administration against the state of Oregon and five individual plaintiffs, two of whom, John Doe 2 and John Doe 4, are transgendered and take prescription hormone drugs that are covered by Oregon's prescription monitoring law. In his 2014 ruling against the DEA, District Judge Court, District Court Judge Answer L. Haggerty called warrantless searches of such data an egregious invasion of privacy. It is difficult to conceive of information that is more deserving of Fourth Amendment protection, Haggerty said. By obtaining the prescription records for individuals like John Doe's 2 and 4, a person would know they'd use testosterone in particular quantities and by exclusion that they have gender identity disorder and are treating it through hormone therapy. Although there is not an absolute right to privacy in prescription information, it is more reasonable for patients to believe that law enforcement agencies will not have unfettered access to their records, he added. The Obama administration disagrees and argues that since the records have already been submitted to a third party, Oregon's PDMP, that patients no longer enjoy an expectation of privacy. In an affidavit, one of the plaintiffs said he already faces difficulty obtaining the injectable testosterone he's required to take, and that increased scrutiny by law enforcement, including the DEA, are another obstacle to obtaining treatment. I would be fearful of being investigated or harassed without reason, he testified. I would feel like I was constantly looking over my shoulder. Last year, after the charges against Marlon Jones were dropped, a Utah senator introduced a bill that would require police to obtain a warrant to search the database. It has become the status quo that when a person comes in under the radar, they run to a prescription drug database and see what they are taking, said Senator Todd Weiler, a Republican, who said that the police in Utah searched the PDMP database as many as 11,000 times in one year alone. If a police officer showed up to your home and wanted to look in your medicine cabinet and you said no, he would have to go get a search warrant. Among the instances of such misconduct, Weiler cited, is the case of an opioid-addicted police officer who was caught on video stealing pills from an elderly couple's home after tracking their prescriptions in the PDMP database. Weiler's bill survived an attempt by opponents to water down the warrant requirements and was signed into law last March. In the rush to address a spike in overdose deaths attributed to prescription medication, Few have questioned the necessity for greater monitoring of drug dispensing to prevent drug diversion and doctor shopping. Every state in the nation, with the exception of Missouri, now has a prescription monitoring program, and several have begun expanding their programs. Wisconsin passed a law in March that liberalized access to the PDMP, making the data available to registered nurses without independent prescribing authority, medical doctors, and substance abuse counselors. The law also removed a previous requirement that police obtain a search warrant to access the data. The federal government is eager to see all this data linked. The Department of Justice has developed a software platform to facilitate sharing among all state PDMPs. So far, 32 states already share their PDMP data through National Association of Boards of Pharmacy Program. The Comprehensive Addictive Addiction and Recovery Act, which passed Congress in March, calls for expanding the PDMP data. From a privacy standpoint, this is problematic for a number of reasons. For starters, there's little uniformity between state PDMP laws. While most PDMPs include the full name, address, and date of birth of the patient, as well as name, strength, and quantity of controlled substance dispense, statutes vary widely in terms of what drugs are tracked and who qualifies for access. According to the Department of Justice, only 19 states require a warrant for law enforcement to access their PDMPs and more than a dozen allow out-of-state police agencies access. 
Less than a quarter of states require that patients are notified when or if their prescription medications might be accessed. To the casual observer, the databases are aimed primarily at limiting illicit use of potentially deadly opioid narcotics. And fatalities tied to prescription drugs are frequently cited by police makers, policy makers, and medical professionals who support mandatory database sharing. But most state PDMPs encompass a host of common pharmaceuticals ranging from tightly controlled Schedule II drugs like Oxycontin and morphine to the more innocuous Schedule V substances such as seizure and epilepsy drugs with virtually no potential for abuse. Fifteen state registries even house information on non-controlled substances. Testosterone is a Schedule III controlled substance that in addition to the gender identity disorder is used to treat hormone deficiency in men and prostate cancer has a high potential for abuse as a performance-enhancing steroid, according to the DEA, though it's not clear how much is derived, der, diverted from legitimate use onto the black market. There are several moderate to severe side effects from steroid use, but overdose does not appear to be one of them. Other drugs covered by state prescription monitoring laws include frequently prescribed medications that have low to no overdose potential. Those include medications used to treat insomnia, weight loss associated with AIDS, nausea and cancer patients, anxiety disorders, and post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, opioids represent a tiny proportion of drugs covered by PDMPs. The diseases and conditions treated with controlled substances are so common that it's likely that the state PDMPs will contain sensitive information about the majority of Americans, said Deborah C. Peel, MD, Director of Patient Privacy Rights, PPR. When Oregon created the PDMP back in 2000, it took pains to prioritize patient privacy and set strict guidelines for access to the registry, including requiring court order for law enforcement to search the contents. The DEA ignored that mandate and peppered the state's registry with warrantless requests for access in pursuit of investigations into drug diversion. The agency argues that it has a compelling interest that supplants any privacy protections attached to prescription data for controlled substances and that requiring a warrant severely limits its ability to conduct timely, effective investigations. An amicus brief filed in support of the Oregon plaintiffs by the American Medical Association contends the DEA's position is misguided. The primary purpose of PDMPs is healthcare, not law enforcement, said the AMA, adding that with PDMPs require provide referrals to law enforcement, they are not designed to be a tool or a repository for law enforcement to initiate access to gather information, as is the case here with the DEA's administrative subpoenas. Whether the Ninth Circuit agrees with that will have far-reaching implications for millions of Americans who rely on prescription medication to manage their illnesses. Yeah, it's bonkers, isn't it? Oh, well, we don't need any, screw your freaking privacy, we don't need any, because the better we are at snooping into every corner of your life, the more we're going to avoid tragedy. Just look at what happened yesterday. Okay. I mean, this database thing. <laughs> yeah. Law enforcement just need to get over it, the fact that any database that isn't theirs, they need to get... A warrant for so even yeah. if the DEA wants something from the FBI mm -hmm. they should have to fill out a warrant because uh -huh. it's not their data <laughs> it's private well in some cases top secret I bet they wouldn't yeah. give that away <laughs> um, even with a warrant
Yeah. But medical records? Yeah. I mean, uh, over here, medical staff have been fired for talking about patients' prescriptions mm -hmm. outside work. You know, nurses have lost their right. jobs, doctors have been kicked out of the medical profession for even talking about what their patients are taking. Well, they're not talking yeah. at work. So, I mean, yeah, the DEA, looking at your records? No. Well, no, and I, and I completely agree with that. Um, one of the wonderful jobs I have here, um, when the lady who counts everything that comes into the back door by a vendor, when she goes on vacation, I do her job. Or when she gets sick or whatever. And, and she's close to retirement, so, you know, I'm doing her job a lot now. And one of the things you have to do is take all the pharmacy bills and enter them by hand into our accounting system. And you, you should see what a brouhaha you have to go through just to get those things. Yeah. The bills, just what they're bringing into the pharmacy. There's such a... There's such a commitment to privacy for this stuff that, I mean, you practically have to sign your life away just to look at them. And there's only certain employees who can see them. Yeah. And it's it's an ethics violation if you ever talk about what's on them or what kind of drugs they're bringing in or, or anything like that. And that's, they can fire you for ethics violations from our work. So that's, and that's just kind of a store. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's not a federal agency. I, yeah. I am floored by the fact that all these agencies, the DEA, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, none of them want to do good old-fashioned police work anymore. They don't want to do work. They want the answers handed to them. They want it easy. They want it quick. They want it cheap. They want it dirty. And it's disgusting. There is no work ethic anymore for these fuckers. Well, I mean, <laughs> the way it works as well. The, the whole arguing to have law in place so they can just go in and do whatever they want. Yeah. It's to save them minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because literally most of the time, from what I gather, what I've seen, what I've heard, right. if the DEA went to a judge going, we want to look at what drugs that person's using, a judge would right. go, yeah, okay, yeah. and sign the paper. Oh, yeah. But no, the DEA don't even want to have to do that. <sighs> They don't really, well... Possibly because they don't want records of them looking for stuff yeah. to actually exist. That That's what it really comes down to, I think. If they don't have to fill out paperwork to get information, nobody knows they're getting the information. Mm-hmm. And then they can do with it whatever and they like. They can do with it what they like, and then they can lie mm -hmm. as well. No, we didn't ask for that. No. <laughs> So, speaking about the DEA, <laughs> DEA agents get jail time for running, <laughs> running secret strip club on taxpayers' dime. So, you can trust these guys. They care about you. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, honest. Was their club full of secret service agents? Oh, I don't know. We'll have to find out. <laughs> Two Drug Enforcement Administration employees had a strip club they owned and operated on government time from 
okay, hid a strip club they owned and operated on government time from federal officials, according to CART documents obtained by the Daily Caller News Foundation. DEA workers Glenn Glover of New Jersey and David Prolos of New York were convicted Thursday of failing to disclose their business interests in South Hackensack, New Jersey's Twin Plus Lounge, and conspiring to hide the club to keep their jobs and top-secret security clearances, according to the Department of Justice. Polos was also convicted of failing to report his romantic relationship with a Brazilian dancer on federal forms when asked to disclose any close relationships with foreign nationals, the court documents show. The two purchased the club in 2010. The DEA allowed Polos to retire from his job as an assistant special agent in charge last year, according to NewJersey.com, and suspended Glover, according to the New York Times. Based on surveillance by myself and other law enforcement agents, databases available to law enforcement agents and witness interviews, I know that Twin Plus Lounge, or Twins Plus Go-Go Lounge, is an adult entertainment establishment located in South Hackensack, New Jersey, featuring scantily clad and sometimes topless women, and offers private stalls for what are supposed to be limited contact dances between patrons and those dancers, commonly called lap dances, FBI Special Agent Hannah M. Bush said in the complaint. The DEA workers did some of their strip club work on government time, and Polis used his government-issued phone to conduct strip club business. Polos sent the related club-related text from his DEA work cell phone, including one on August 18, 2011, saying, bring your cooler to the bar, and another saying, we need to move ice machine on the same date, according to court documents. Polos, during an argument with an unnamed co-manager's wife, lifted up his pant leg, pointed to a gun on his ankle, and said, this is the boss. I am the boss, the documents said. Um, most of the club's dancers were undocumented immigrants from Russia and Brazil. Polos and the other club owners let undocumented Brazilian dancers work double shifts to save money to replace, repay smugglers, oh boy, who set up her illegal entry into the country. Polos also loaned the dancer bail money after she was arrested in 2012 for assault and criminal mischief in an altercation with a local police officer outside the club court's records ad. Polo sometimes wore his badge and told people at the club he worked for the FBI. And Glover, at least once, wore a bulletproof vest to the Twins Plus, court documents said. Glover was responsible for dealing with dancers and managing the bartending staff and collected between $10 and $30 per night from dancers who worked at the club, court records claim. When Polos and Glover are sentenced on a yet-to-be-announced date, they will face 15 and 10 years behind bars, respectively. Your government agents working for you. <laughs> Your tax dollars at work. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't know about you, but uh, that gives me a hell of a lot of confidence in the government. So, I secret think... service agents have parties with drugs and hookers, and DEA agents have strip clubs. Yes. What are the That's... criminals supposed to be doing these days? <laughs> You know, I don't know. I think they're probably trying to get a little too much prescription painkillers. Yeah, that must be it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, these were things when I was a kid that certain groups of people were involved in and they weren't government agents. <laughs> well, here's, or, here's a good one for you. I worked as a traffic warden. Okay. Working attendant in Edinburgh for six mm -hmm. months. Um. 
during our training, we're actually told, right, if there's a, a sauna and you give somebody a parking ticket outside it, don't use that address as the location. <laughs> People get really upset if you put that on on their parking tickets. Really? Like, yeah, because, yeah... People who know Edinburgh will, will know the area I'm talking about, Tollcross. Okay. There are many, many saunas um, <laughs> and bars uh, with interesting pictures in the windows. But yeah, yeah, you, we actually got told, no, 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 you can't, you can't put that down on people's parking tickets. So, why not? <laughs> they get cranky. Apparently, that, yeah, if you're in the DEA, you can, yeah, you can, well, one, not go to work, and <laughs> two, uh, do illegal shit while not at work. Well, you in know. fact, they probably did some of the illegal stuff while they were at work. Probably. Since it was done on their phones. Um, yep. Yep. You I bet know, the I'll... FBI really enjoyed this one, though. <laughs> well, probably. I'm sure, I'm sure that a lot of people really enjoyed it. I think the government doesn't look at itself as one united entity. I think it looks at itself as just a, a bunch of little Hitlers with their own agendas. Fiefdoms, yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's not uh, it's not what it was supposed to be. Although, <laughs> technically most of those agencies are illegal. And I'm going to talk about guns so, um, yeah, federal appeals court strikes down concealed carry. The second amendment does not give Americans the right to carry concealed weapons. A federal appeals court ruled Thursday in a decision that could dramatically impact the nation's gun laws. We hold that the second amendment does not protect in any degree the carrying of concealed firearms by members of the general public. The opinion in the ninth, ninth, U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, read, it was written by Judge Susan P. Grabber, a Clinton nominee. We therefore conclude that the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms does not include in any degree the right of a member of the general public to carry concealed firearms in public. The case, Perula versus San Diego County, originated out of California, although its effect was felt across the country. The vote was seven to four. The U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals held today that residents have no Second Amendment right to carry a firearm outside their home for self-defense. Alabama Attorney General Luther Strange said, in effect, the appeals court ruled that the San Diego County can outlaw guns outside the home by declining to issue anyone a permit. This court's decision is a direct challenge to the Second Amendment and is unconstitutional. In a dissent, Judge Consuelo Callahan, a nominee of a nominee of President George W. Bush wrote, a prohibition on carrying concealed handguns in conjunction with a prohibition of open carry handguns would destroy the right to keep and bear arms. The Sheriff's Department in two California counties, YOLO, you only live once county, Jesus Christ, <clears throat> and San Diego, only issue concealed carry permits to people who can prove they are in danger from violent attack, such as by showing a restraining order. In 2009, two men, Edward Perula, Petrula of San Diego and Adam Richards of Yolo County, applied for concealed carry permits and were turned down. 
that prompted the California Rifle and Pistol Association to sue the counties in a federal court on behalf of Perilla. Richards and three others, <clears throat> last year, a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit, ruled that the policy violated the Second Amendment. The entire Ninth Circuit overturned that ruling on Thursday. The immediate impact of the ruling is that it affects only the states in the Ninth Circuit. Alaska, Washington State, Idaho, Oregon, Montana, Nevada, California, and Hawaii. But if it's appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court and upheld, then concealed carry could soon be banned nationwide. The case attracted national attention with briefs filed by states outside the district, including Alabama. All total, 20 other states signed the brief. Alaska, Arkansas, Florida, Idaho, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, Missouri, Montana, Nevada, North Dakota, Idaho, um, sorry, I, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. Um, F, okay, Second Amendment rights, okay, a number of Second Amendment rights and gun control groups also filed court, front of the court briefs. The defendants in the case, San Diego County Sheriff William D. Gore, the state of California were represented by the California Solicitor General Edward C. Dumont. Dumont appealed the loss from last year after Gore declined to do so, the Associated Press reported. The plaintiffs were represented by Paul V. Clement, who served as a U.S. Solicitor General during the George W. Bush administration. Interestingly, the court refused to touch on the issue of open carry firearms in public. Quote, we do not question whether the Second Amendment protects some ability to carry firearms in public, such as open carry, the opinion read. The Second Amendment may or may not protect to some degree a right of, of a member of the general public to carry firearms in public. We hold only that there is no Second Amendment right for members of the general public to carry concealed firearms in public. The court also ruled that the U.S. Supreme Court's Heller decision, which upheld the rights of private gun ownership, does not affect concealed carry. Most observers expect Petrula will be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, the only court of appeal from the Ninth Circuit. The case will presumably arrive at the Supreme Court sometime after Judge Antonin Scalia's replacement is on the court. Scalia, whose opinion supported gun rights, died in February. Um, in a way, this is kind of what happens when you have a patchwork of legislation, of areas that are, are covered by different districts and courts, and it, it really is kind of, to me, it's unbelievable that concealed carry, concealed carry, which is going to stop people from being hysterical is not held. Open carry is going to possibly get you killed. So I'm just amazed by that whole thing. I really am. And I don't know why, because uh, I know a lot of public opinion is changing about things. And I know the makeup of, you know, many of the courts is changing. So almost like in many ways the whole country could be divided into fours and if it were divided into fours instead of the way the circuit court runs you would probably get a lot more people who agreed with each other's way of life and, and how they wanted to live 
than what you have here. I don't know. Thoughts? Uh, it's <laughs> hard to say. You, It's definitely insane that it's such a patchwork. Um, mm. uh, obviously, I live in a very small country, so it's right. easy for us to have most laws the same across everywhere in the same country. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> the EU tries to do the same for certain <laughs> laws across the whole of Europe. Not very successfully, it must be said. <laughs> um, but that's down to countries basically refusing to follow rather than them not having the same law. Um, nullification. Which is, which is closest comparison since yeah. the EU is multiple states mm -hmm. um, so yeah I mean it needs it needs unification it's the one thing that's that's when you do want central government so that I... everywhere's kind of following the same plan rather than as you say each individual county can have different rules it's... on something that should technically be a national rule it's but it's almost it, it's like i said if you divided the country in four just sliced it down one way and sliced it down another way you would have people that really did agree with each other more um there's different beliefs and different um thoughts that are having lived in the very cold north and having lived in the very deep south, I can tell you, um, there are thoughts and politics and opinions that are pretty normal for the cold white north that are very different from what is um, considered right and normal way down south. It, it's... Um, you know, it, it's just really, it's just interesting stuff. Um, no, the AP didn't mention that the Ninth Circuit Court is the most overturned court in the U.S., but it is. Um, and, yeah, it, cute. Ninth Circus Court, that's about right. Um, they, I don't know. It's just very, it's bizarre to me that... You have this giant country with all these different beliefs and belief systems and, and people. And, you know, the federal government is trying to do its unifying thing and it's failing miserably um, because of the state's power. Oh, yeah. And also we're back to judges shouldn't be political appointees. <laughs> <laughs> so it keeps just, it keeps mentioning oh such and such was appointed but under the such and such administration well, and I mean but who, like, who, yeah but who it's the legal you, profession who should be choosing who are the supreme court judges not politicians. I don't know I mean we have to vote on who our supreme court judges are every year yeah I mean, but, I mean it doesn't everybody I mean well, and, and and you know no lie it's not like I'm a great legal scholar, but I can sit down and I can look at, at people's rulings and decide whether they would adequately represent me or not. Yeah. Um, 
But they should, what I'm saying is, you know, they shouldn't be put forward by politicians. Um, well, but I mean, who, who, okay. Um, p politics and legal should be separated, <laughs> as far okay. as I'm concerned. Right. Well, you know. Well, I mean, not from the public. I know. I, mean, I know from, what you're saying. Yeah. But because I'm also. <laughs> you, you're, you're playing favorites. It shouldn't work well, that way. <laughs> okay. Uh, granted, you know, I'm, I'm for that, but I also would say that I think everybody who listens to this podcast is reasonably intelligent enough that they could pick a, a Supreme Court justice nominee by popular vote, okay? There are, <laughs> there are problems with voting in this country, and they're big, huge, landslide problems. Um, if people go in and vote undecided, their votes are assigned to someone based on a random algorithm. And I think people don't know that, especially when they're doing computer voting. I would hazard a guess that most of you here didn't know when you go in and you vote for president, if you vote undecided, you know, um, your vote will be cast randomly to this Democrat or this Republican based on a freaking computer algorithm. You know, and not just that. How many times have we talked about how many people screw with the voting process? They not only hack the computer-based systems, they do all kind of funky stuff. I, I don't know. It um, Maybe paper ballots are, are good, paper and pencil hand tabulation, carefully watched, preferably on film, so that anybody can watch hundreds of hours of boring vote counting. I certainly think it would be more accurate than allowing a computer to tabulate it. Um, I don't know. You'll, you'll find it weird, but at times they have had on TV in the UK, you know, film of the, mm -hmm. the, the counting rooms during well, elections. They should. They sure, should. You're sitting there live watching people shuffle paper about. <laughs> so. We should see that. You should yeah. see that. You should look at it. You should understand. You should be part of the process. And you're not. Especially when... Voting fraud is rampant. People are deleted from the voting rolls all over the place. Um, there are people with actual proof of votes being changed when they go to vote. You can see screens flip from one to the other, even though they've clearly touched on the touch screen who they wish to be whoever. Um, this is a problem. It's a huge problem. It's rife with fraud. Um, and while I do agree that judges should be appointed by the people, I mean, I would have to say to you, do you, and maybe it's me, maybe I'm just super suspicious and, and weird and paranoid. I don't, I sure as fuck don't trust the president, but I damn sure don't trust 99% of the public to come up with an educated decision on whose politics get to run the court systems. You know, I would rather it be a fucking coin toss at this point. But I don't know that 
I trust people as much as everyone else does. I don't. People don't look at the good of everyone. They look at the good of themselves. And, and that's, it's self-serving. And I, I don't know that I agree with it. Who is going to give me the most? How is it going to benefit me the most? And, and right now I'm talking about like presidential politics more than anything else. Um, who your Congress critter is, what, what can you get from them? I don't, I don't know. I don't like this whole process, but, um, you know, I think we'd do better as free people. I think most people freely associate with each other without violence, without extortion, without any of the things that you see whenever you deal with government. Well, Stereo Dreamer has mentioned the other bit about judges. Yeah, <laughs> shouldn't be lifetime. Mm-mm. Yeah, they start going crazy. Uh, yeah, well... Well, um, they... the way they deal with it in the UK... <laughs> judge gets old and starts having kind of iffy decisions, outbursts <laughs> in court, stuff like that. Right. Quietly, he just stops being assigned to cases. <laughs> <laughs> it might take the... If, if they're really old and doddery, doddery it might take them years to notice they're not actually getting any cases anymore um, <laughs> <laughs> they just stop using them um, they're still classed as a judge but they'll never get called to actually sit on a case you know I, I just I don't know I, I think I don't know I don't like the idea of direct democracy because direct democracy does one really bad thing it makes everything a majority rule and the most persecuted minority is the minority of one. There will always be one dissenting opinion. And that dissenting opinion deserves to be protected just like your majority opinion. I don't know. I, I have a lot of ethical squeamishness about a lot of this. I don't like the way it works now, but I don't know how you reform it and make it work right when you're dealing with human beings you know uh, people are are weird they're fickle and and odd and so many are stuck in a belief system that they refuse to vacate even when they're given proof that they're maybe not wrong but that there are other viewpoints out there that are just as valid i, I don't know how you reconcile the reality of humanity and the reality of government because they don't go well together. The politics and humanity don't go well together. It's just, it's such a screwy mix. People are irrational, but the government is much worse. The government is irrational and the government is violent. And most people are peaceful. So, I don't know. I have problems all the way around with this. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to uh, go off on the uh, road to anarchy, I guess. <clears throat> uh, okay. So that was terrible. Um, most of the stuff is terrible. So what do we want to talk about? Do we want to talk about the amendments to the NDAA, expanding presidential war-making power? and allow Congress to support rather than declare war? 
or do we want to talk about all the people who've been fired and laid off in this country who were given these decent severance packages, not great, but were forced to train their replacements who were foreign workers with much less capability for the jobs? I don't know. It's all part in policy of the same thing, so I guess it doesn't really matter. So, okay, laid off Americans required to zip lips on the way out or boulder. Technology workers from Abbott Laboratories gathered in April at a North Chicago bar after the company laid off 150 of them. American corporations are under new scrutiny from federal lawmakers after well-publicized episodes in which the companies that laid off American workers and gave the jobs to foreigners on temporary visas. But while corporate executives have been outspoken in defending their labor practices before Congress and the public, the American workers who've lost jobs to global outsourcing companies have been largely silent until recently. Now some of the workers who were displaced are starting to speak out despite severance agreements prohibiting them from criticizing their former employers. Marco Pino was among about 150 technology workers who were laid off in April by Abbott Laboratories, a global healthcare conglomerate with headquarters here. They handed their badges and computer passwords and turned over their work to a company based in India. But Mr. Pina, who had worked at Abbott for 12 years, said he decided not to sign the agreement that was given to all its departing employees, which include a, a non-disclosure clause. Mr. Pina said his choice cost him $10,000 in severance pay. But on an April evening, after he walked out of Abbott's tree-lined campus here for the last time, he spent a few hours in a local bar gathering organized by technology worker advocates, speaking his mind about a job he had loved and lost. I just didn't feel right about signing, Mr. Pina said. The clauses were pretty blanket. I felt like they were eroding my rights. Leading members of Congress from both major parties have questioned the non-disparagement agreements, which are commonly used by corporations, but can prohibit oust workers from raising complaints about what they see as misuse of temporary visas. Lawmakers, including Richard Durbin of Illinois, the second highest ranking Senate Democrat, and Jeff Sessions of Alabama, the Republican chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee on Immigration have proposed revisions to visa laws to include measures allowing former employees to contest their layoffs. I've heard from workers who are fearful of retaliation, said Senator Richard Blumenthal, and I don't like that guy, of Connecticut. They are told they can say whatever they want, except they can't say anything negative about being fired. He has a point there. Lawmakers said the paragraph Mr. Pina and other workers object to in their separation agreements is routine in final contracts with employees or paid severance leave as they leave, whether they were laid off or resigned voluntarily. It's a very, very common practice, said Sheena R. Hamilton, an employee at Dowd Bennett in St. Louis who represents companies in workplace cases. I've never recommended a settlement that didn't have a clause like that. Um, okay. It's very frustrating that you can't share your story with the public, said one former Abbott manager who had worked for the company for 13 years, rising to an important supervisory position. He had prepared a 90-page manual for his former replacements, showing how to perform every detail of his work. With a disabled child who required medical care, he said he had to take his severance and, non, and its non-disparagement clause since it extended his medical benefits, so he asked to remain anonymous. 
I've been laid off before. I can understand that, he said. But these visas were meant to fill in the gaps for resources that are hard to find. This time, the company actually asked me to transfer my knowledge to somebody else. That changes the equation. According to federal rules, temporary visas, known as H-1Bs, are for foreigners with a body of specialized knowledge, not readily available in the labor market. The visas should be granted only when they will not undercut wages or adversely affect the working conditions of Americans. But in the past five years, through loopholes in the rules, tens of thousands of American workers have been replaced by foreigners on an H-1B and other temporary visas, according to Professor Hal Salzman, a labor force expert at Rutgers University. In March, two Americans who had been laid off in 2014 by New England power company Eversource Energy spoke at a news conference in Hartford, even though they had signed non-disparagement agreements. Craig D'Angelo, 63, and Judy Konka, 56, said most of the 220 people facing dismissal had been required as part of their severance to train Indian immigrants with H-1Bs and other visas. In protest, departing employees posted American flags outside their cubicles. As they left, they took the flags down. Mr. D'Angelo took a photograph of the flags in his final days at the utility. At the time, he and Ms. Kumpka spoke with reporters, including from the New York Times, but they did not want to be quoted, even without their names. In January, Senator Blumenthal spotted the photograph in an article in Computer World, a Czech industry publication, and was dismayed to learn of the layoffs so long after they had happened. In a letter to the company, the senator questioned whether the dismissals were accompanied through apparent abuses of visas, and he demanded assurances that former employees would not be sued if they spoke with government officials. In a forceful reply, the Eversource General Counsel, Gregory B. Butler, said the company had not violated any laws and its non-disparagement provisions were standard form release that did not restrict former employees from discussing their layoffs with you or anyone else. Mr. D'Angelo said he was not so sure the company would refrain from legal action if he spoke to the news media, but he said, I finally got to the point where I'm tired of hiding in the shadows. Sarah Blackwell, a lawyer representing former Abbott employees, spoke at a gathering of workers in April. Two years later, um, okay, so we're back to Mr. D'Angelo. Two years later, his work with a local contracting firm pays $45,000 a year less than his Eversource salary. Many of his former co-workers are also struggling, Mr. D'Angelo said, but, but stay quiet to avoid provoking the company. At Abbott Executives announced in February that technology jobs would be taken over by the Indian company Wipro. Senator Durbin, who is from Illinois, criticized the layoffs and said Abbott's non-disparagement clause was overly broad. According to a copy of the agreement, the clause read in part, we agree to make every effort to maintain and protect the reputation of Abbott and its products and agents. A spokesman for Abbott, Scott Stoffel, said the changes were part of its effort to remain globally competitive and a strong U.S. employer. He said the company would retain the vast majority of its tech jobs in the United States. Non-disparagement clauses like Abbott's are very common in severance agreements. Mr. Pena said he could afford to turn down a severance payment because he is single and has no children. I was the only one with the ability to put my foot down, he said. He received consistently positive work reviews and merit raises before his layoff, he said. With no indication that poor performance was a factor, he believed it was a measure to cut costs. Anything that has to deal with technology and resolving problems, that was my satisfaction, my passion, Mr. Penna said. But these days, that has no bearing on the decision-making of executives in higher positions. 
Abbott tried to reduce the role of foreigners in the layoffs. Only about 20% of the workers bought in by Wipro were foreigners on H-1B visas, Mr. Stossel said, while the rest would be American workers. Mr. Pina said he had been told at first that he would train his Wipro replacements, but after Senator Durbin's rebuke, Wipro workers were trained only by employees who would be remaining with Abbott, he said. He and 13 other Abbott employees filed federal claims saying they faced discrimination because of their ages and American citizenship, said Sarah Blackwell, a lawyer representing them. Those claims are confidential. Ms. Blackwell organized the tavern meeting where Abbott workers were invited to mourn their jobs. Of the small group that came, only Mr. Pena spoke up. On April 20, about two dozen employees of Emblem Health, a health insurer, protested outside its offices in Manhattan after the company announced it would transfer about 200 tech jobs to Cognizant another employee outsourcing company. Even though they're in the street holding signs, the employees declined to have their names used in news reports. Yeah. Um, from what I know, yes, it is very common in corporate America. Uh, mm -hmm. Very rare over here. Here, you, you just get fired. You can say what you like about the employer afterwards, as long as it's not... <laughs> going to bring about, you know, libel or similar. <laughs> you, it, you can quite happily go, they were shit to work for and they fired <laughs> me because they employed some guy abroad. You're allowed to say that over here. Yeah. I don't, uh, it's I don't insane know. that they can put controls on what you're allowed to say after you've finished working for them. That's just crazy. And oh. understand confidentiality agreements where you mm -hmm. can't talk about what you did at the company. Right. But stopping you being able to even say you don't like the company anymore, that's just nuts. Well, you know, how could you like a company? Uh, for instance, I work for a company. I'm not supposed to say anything. But how... Are you supposed to like a company that has bias that, you know, its managers give jobs to people who aren't worthy of them? You know, people who know how to do the jobs are, are cut out because they have buddies. And that's just, that's just a stupid retail job. And I'm not supposed to speak about it at all. Yeah. At all. So I can't imagine what it must be like to work in technology of, of any kind. Your job really isn't secure anywhere. Well, I have, I have a friend, mm -hmm. I've mentioned this before, I have many friends who work for banks in IT. Mm -hmm. One of them, a couple of years ago, was actually sent to India mm -hmm. to train staff in India. Guess <sighs> what happened at his company, at his bank, a few months later? Let me guess. All the replacements got to do the jobs overseas because it was so much cheaper. Yes. Ah. Luckily for him, he got a promotion. Mm -hmm. So avoided getting fired with the rest of his department. Um, Everybody else is... Some, some of the other people who did the same were still fired, though. So, yeah, similar to the guy in the story. Yeah, yeah, I, they wanted me to train for my replacement. Basically, this is what this friend of mine was doing. Yeah. But luckily, right. he got promoted. <laughs> you know, it, it's just... I don't know. Um, oh, and I think I mentioned a lot. I think I said to you in a conversation last week 
some some of the jobs they outsourced to India, they're now rehiring people in the UK, including Wait. one of the people they fired. <laughs> they tried to get this woman to come back to work for them. She was like, get no. lost. No, thank you. It's my, okay. My dad, um, when he retired from the military, I mean, we worked on a farm, but my dad used to also work setting like Super Bowl rings and stuff for a company. And the, it's, it's a skill you have to be taught for years how to do. And it's not something that just anybody can do. So all the jobs of all the people <coughs> wound up getting outsourced year by year by year. And uh, they were finding out that rings were coming back from other places with stones set in them upside down. They weren't polished some just about every ring has to go into a cyanide bath to remove some of the other chemicals that happen to show up in them during the smelting process because it changes the look of the metal and i i think a lot of people don't know that right so the cyanide wasn't being adequately rinsed off people were getting very sick there were a, a whole lot Probably of problems overheating with, it as well because you yeah. normally have to heat this yeah so there were there were a lot of problems um and uh what basically happened is this big giant company wound up being a room of about five people and my dad was like i'm i'm out and yeah. i i don't blame him it's it's ridiculous it's not ridiculous. I, I understand cutting costs and savings and everything, but I'm going to go back again to World War II. And I'm going to talk about economics back then. Okay. Um, a business was like a shared venture, but not really so much. A capitalist laid out a lot of money and they expected to get something of value in return, but they didn't expect as much productivity as all these companies and governments seem to expect these days. Um, the productivity is kept extremely high by artificially low hiring numbers and taking jobs that generally take the whole span of your work shift and applying different portions to different portions of a, a different person's day. So you might go in and do one thing and do another and Although it might all pay the same, uh, certain people can only do certain things a, a certain way and quality suffers, morale goes down. Um, I would have to say I think I know less and less happy workers now that everything is pure profit driven. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a good feeling to go into work to a place like that. Nobody well, yeah, likes I mean, it. Yeah, the, the modern age, a company gets to a certain size mm -hmm. and then it's no longer the managers who are actually running the company, mm -hmm. it's the accountants. Yep. Um, when I worked in hotels, mm -hmm. we kind of suffered from that a bit. Although, right. weirdly, the managing director of the company, while he was an accountant, mm -hmm. um was also a very smart guy 
So, <laughs> you did have things where they'd uh, say, right, we're cutting a number of stuff and hours mm -hmm. to do this task in the hotel, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. But then they'd actually listen to feedback from the hotels. And if you had good reason <laughs> why right. it wasn't going to work, he actually used to change his mind. So he wasn't he wasn't completely money focused. Yeah, I mean he saved the company a fortune when he took over. Mm -hmm. But he knew when to stop cutting. <laughs> it's funny most people really don't, and it, like you said, places are run now by accountants. Um, certain things are given value over others that make no sense. Um, this. I don't know. This is not the world my parents grew up in. It's, I'm certainly happy I don't have any children to grow up into this world because <laughs> it's going to get really interesting. Um, the, 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 the worst case. And they keep covering it up and complain about it whenever it gets shown in ooh, like documentaries. Um, mm -hmm. Amazon warehouses. Yeah, they're bad. The handsets. <laughs> yeah. Beep. You have two minutes to get the next item. Yeah. Well, running with his trolley to go and pick the items. Well, actually, and now if, if it if it, if the countdown runs out before he's actually got to the item, it goes paywire and beeping and. Yeah. Guy well, might I be mean, lying there having a heart attack, but no, no, the handsets like you didn't, you haven't got there. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> you know, I as and they're terrible. Don't get me wrong. They have after you, you'll just you'll be unsurprised to learn after there was a documentary in the UK about this guy working mm -hmm. undercover in Amazon. Uh, they seem to slacken off a little <laughs> bit because I know people that have worked at Amazon since. And they're like, mm -hmm. oh no, it's not that bad these days. You know, well, like, really? <laughs> well, at least the documentary made one slight change then. Well, you know, and honestly, I mean, most people that I know didn't plan or don't plan on warehouse work forever. Warehouse work here is so bad that much of it in the state is outsourced to the prison population. Yeah. Yeah. So. See, luckily um, they can't do that over here. So. Yeah. Oh well, they actually have to pay human beings to do it there instead of saying, "Oh well, you're a prisoner." Well, let's face it, it's Amazon. They've different. already automated as much as they can. Yeah. Well, I, they kind of have. Yeah, I mean, here too, they actually. Um, what I will say about Amazon is they've invested in these shelves that move on a track. Oh yeah. To kind of help people meet their goals. I don't know. I mean, the, the uh. warehouses are amazing to watch. <laughs> mm -hmm. Would never want to work in one. But, no. yeah. The, right. Despite the fact it's basically a giant warehouse, it's probably mm -hmm. one of the most high-tech environments anybody could ever work in. Yeah, I mean... I mean, you know, you're surrounded it, by robots, computers. And I just don't understand how, if you're surrounded by robots and computers, it's not air-cooled. That makes no sense to me. Always well, we see over here it is because there are regulations in place that the working oh. air temperature has to be at a certain level. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. we even have laws for that over here. Yeah. 
Well, your your health and safety people are are. Um, well, there's very... health and safety for everything. Well, I'm just saying they're very thorough. Yeah. You know, um, they produced a film about how to adequately use a ladder for people. They've produced many films about ladders. Right? No, no, I know. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I think my favorite thing. I've seen that one. It's very. It's hilarious when you've actually worked <laughs> somewhere where you use a ladder. And it's have, very, have very. Have any of us ever done that? No. <laughs> yeah. Do not stand here. It's do not stand on the top rung. I'm like, I'm so damn short. I can't reach the top shelf without standing on the top rung. I, I worked in a hotel where they had um, 20 foot high, you know, 20 foot ceilings. Right. And you had to change light bulbs on chandeliers that only came down. Uh, about five feet. <laughs> yeah, you were on the top of the ladder. Of course you are, and you're stretching. You definitely had somebody no. holding it, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. But yeah, um, in, the U in the UK, mm -hmm. uh, anything above shoulder height, there's supposed to be two of you on a ladder. So there's huh. somebody to hold the ladder above shoulder height. They do specify average shoulder height, by the way, in case anybody <laughs> wonders. Well, of course they do. Like I said, your health and safety people are very thorough. Although, of course, I'm tall and got long arms, so I used to, you know, not bother <laughs> with a lot of that one. I love yeah. shoulder height, really. Mm. <laughs> okay, so we talked about... We talked about so much fun stuff tonight. I, I don't even... <laughs> I don't even know how people can... I don't know. How can you listen to this and not have a great time every week? <laughs> <laughs> I, do, okay. I do ease them in gently with the refreshments. <laughs> I, mean, I, yeah. I know. Yeah. Well, late people who are along later miss that. But, yeah. I know. It's a shame. Because yeah, it, is, it is the laugh for the evening. Okay. Amendments to NDAA expand presidential war-making power, allow Congress to support rather than declare war. Two prominent members of the U.S. Senate have offered amendments to fiscal year 2017 National Defense Authorization Act that would give the president sweeping new powers to prosecute the war against ISIL and other purported threats to the safety of the American people. First, Senator Tom Kane, Democrat of Virginia, a member of the Senate Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees, is sponsoring an amendment that would require the upcoming presidential administration to propose a rewritten and updated request for authorization of the use of military force within two years. As it stands today, President Obama has perpetuated the war on terror on the AUMF passed in the days following his the attacks of September 11th, 2001. Kane's second proposal is co-sponsored by Senator Jeff Flake, Republican of Arizona, and would, among other things, mandate that the renewed AUMF would provide military support to regional partners in their battle to defeat ISIL and establish new AUMF as the sole statutory authority for U.S. military action against ISIL. Nearly two years into an executive war against ISIL, the unwillingness of this Congress to authorize the war shows not only a lack of resolve, it's such a dangerous precedent, said Kane in a statement published on his webpage. It's not hard to imagine a future president using this inaction to justify the hasty and unprecedented inaction of the military 
against new enemies on new fronts without the permission of Congress. Short of passing an ISIL-specific authorization this year, it's my hope that we can revise the 2001 Authorization for Use of Military Force, a broad and open-ended measure passed in the days just after September 11, 2001, to better tailor the U.S. fight against terrorism and non-state actors globally, as well as clarify our mission for the American people and those service members we are asking to take their lives, he said. While there are significant constitutional problems with these proposals, they seem to escape Senator Kane. In a commencement address delivered to graduates at the Virginia Military Institute, Kane explained his position on just who has war powers and how they should be exercised. Kane declared, For those of you who received a commission yesterday, you swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. What an interesting oath. Think about that. A military officer does not pledge to support and defend the United States, but instead pledges to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. So do military enlisted personnel. So does the President of the United States. And a United States Senator takes the same pledge. Let's look at the pledge we made together and apply it to our current situation. On August 8, 2014, the President initiated a bombing campaign against ISIL the Islamic State in Levant. ISIL was rapidly taking over territory in Syria and Iraq and left unchecked, posed a threat to U.S. consulate in Erbil, Iraq. Within a few weeks, the imminent threat to the United States was over. But the president determined that ISIL posed a longer-term threat to the U.S. and its allies and that we needed to go on a fence against ISIL. He described the threat to the American public in a televised address on September 10, 2014, and asked Congress to support them in that mission. 21 months of offensive war later, thousands of Americans have been deployed to fight ISIL, some including VMI graduates. Virginian connected with the USS Harry Truman Carrier Strike Groups are there now. We've launched over 9,000 airstrikes and spent more than $7 billion. And the original theater of battle... Iraq and Syria has suspended to include military action against ISIL elements in Yemen, Libya, Afghanistan, and ground fighting as well as airstrikes. As ISIL has conducted widening terrorist attacks in the Middle East, Africa, and Europe, far from the original fields of battle, there are ongoing discussions about whether the U.S. military force should be used in additional countries to battle the ISIL threat. So far, Congress, despite repeated requests from the president, has refused to declare or vote to authorize military action against ISIL. Congress has strongly criticized the president for virtually every aspect of our anti-ISIL strategy, but Congress has been unwilling to vote to authorize the war or to stop it. Kane goes on to explain that Congress has the obligation to pass authorization for the president to commit combat troops into any overseas conflict. He says this is how the framers intended to balance the war-making powers between the executive and legislative branches of the federal government. King quotes James Madison, citing the Virginian as an authority who supported the concept of congressional authorization of wars carried on by the president. Madison might be surprised to find himself being recruited into such a position. In a letter to Thomas Jefferson written in 1798, Madison explained his frequent collaborator why the Constitution placed exclusive control over declaring war in the legislative branch. The Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. It has accordingly studied with care the vested 
vested the question of war in the legislative. But the doctrines lately advanced strike at the root of these provisions and will deposit the peace of the country in the department which the Constitution distrusts as most readily without cause to renounce it. There is nothing in the statement that even hints Madison would approve of the position that the president possesses the power to deploy the U.S. military and Congress should play merely an advisory post-ad hoc role in a potentially fatal decision. To put a finer point on the issue, eminent jurist and influential states' right advocate St. George Tucker set out in commentaries on Blackstone the reason behind resisting war power in the hands of the people's representatives. The power of declaring war, with all of its train of consequences, direct and indirect, forms the next branch of powers confided to Congress, and happy it is for the people of America that it is so vested. The term war embraces the extremes of human misery and inequity, and is like the offspring of one parent of the other. What else is the history of war from earliest ages to the present moment, but an afflicting detail of the sufferings and calamities of mankind resulting from the ambition, usurpation, animosities, resentments, piques, intrigues, evidence, rapacity, oppression, murders, assassination, and other crimes of the few possessing this power. How are the instances of a just war? How few of those which are thus denominated had their existence in a national injury. The personal claims of the sovereign are confounded with the interests of the nation over which he presides, and his private grievances or complaints are transferred to the people, who are thus made the victims of a quarrel in which they have no part until they become principals in it by their sufferings. Finally, perhaps Senators Kane and Flake can point to the provision in the Constitution wherein the federal government is given the authority to send U.S. service members to provide military support to regional partners. There is no such authorization. Kane told the VMI graduates that Americans must hold Congress accountable for its votes regarding sending troops into combat. He said that Congress should be forced to demonstrate legislatively its support for the war against ISIL. The Constitution doesn't call for Congress to vote to support wars declared by the President. Congress is required to declare war before money and men are sacrificed to the cause. Support is not the same as declare, and Congress needs to be held accountable for their decision to rewrite Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, an amendment that allows them to escape accountability for the death, destruction, and debt have come as companions of our perpetual and unconstitutional wars. Who'd have thought it? Politicians <laughs> like twisting things around to get their own way. Yeah, well, you know. And it's it's quite funny because many countries, mine included, have mm -hmm. pursued legal wars quite often huh? uh, without the appropriate voting. Uh, the UK's preference is to call an illegal war a policing action. Uh -huh. They're not there fighting a war. You understand, there, right. you know, people are dying, getting bombed, shot, everything. But it's not a war where they're policing a situation. They've done that a lot. Yeah, well, it's um. <laughs> my my father w did a lot of policing in Malaysia <laughs> uh, when he was in the army. Yeah, well, you know, shooting some communists. Sorry, I... policing some communists. <laughs> I grew um, I grew up in a military household, so that all made sense to me. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. the American military say it as well. Oh, we're, we're doing a policing action. Mm-hmm. Oh, funny. Police round my way don't tend to have B-52s, <laughs> aircraft carriers, oh, well. tanks. Well, hey, okay, in the US. Here. Here. In the US, it's getting that way. Uh, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. It's pretty bad, actually. Uh, you know, and I love how people get outraged, and Congress writes a law that says, "Oh, well, we're we're going to take yeah. we're going to take this. This stuff is coming back." Yeah, and they see some stupid stuff that people can't use, like rocket launchers, because they don't <laughs> make they don't make the shells for the rocket launchers anymore. Yeah, so they seize those, but they leave them with all the rest of the. Heavy military equipment. I, I don't know. I think it's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, the next yeah, year, of course, have... that law goes away. But yes, um, a single person shouldn't be able to declare war. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. But also, they are right in another way. Congress does need to man up and either vote for or against. They can't just keep dodging the issue. Oh, well, why not? They've been doing it for years. Yeah, but it's not what they're <laughs> supposed to be doing. I know, it's not what they're And supposed they shouldn't be allowed to change the law that says <laughs> I know. that it's their responsibility. I know, um, yeah, we're just going to say we're just going to say... Yeah, again, say- it's back to, yeah, they should all be arrested and locked up because they're not doing their job. Well... And in this case, it's to do with war. So, yeah, it's really quite important. Well... They must not think so. Okay. They're, they're too busy having dinner parties and fundraisers for the next election. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that 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 stupid little thin book, The Confessions of Congressman X, it's pretty bad, but it doesn't say anything we didn't already know about what it's like to be a politician. I mean, the yeah, American you, you people You spend four years idiots. getting ready for the next four years. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and the American people aren't stupid. They know that. Okay. Um, so, I don't know anyone who plans on driving through Oklahoma ever again. And they have a good reason for that. I certainly wasn't planning to drive through Oklahoma. Well, I'm sure you won't after you read this. Oklahoma police can seize your entire bank account on a traffic stop without any charges. The one state that has gone completely anti-democratic is Oklahoma. It is wise not to travel in that state at all. Oklahoma should be a no-fly zone. Now, Oklahoma police can outright seize everything you have, from debit cards to bank accounts, on a traffic stop without any criminal charges being filed. If some policeman thinks you're doing something illegal, your life is over. Without money, you cannot hire a lawyer, and they can just rob everything you have on a whim. The Oklahoma Highway Patrol has introduced a device called Electronic Recovery and Assets to Data that allows police officers to seize money in your bank account or even on prepaid cards. State police began using 16 of these machines last month, and now the police have become literal highway robbers. This makes traffic cops in Russia, who you can bribe to go away if they pull you over for a speeding ticket, far more as a far more civilized arrangement. Here, they can rob you of everything. Let's say a state trooper suspects or thinks you may have money tied to any sort of crime. He can now scan any cards you have and seize the money in your wallet. He does not have to charge you with a crime. There is no right to remain silent for he's not charging you. He's after all your money because the government is broke. Oklahoma Highway Patrol Lieutenant John Vincent said, We're going to look if there's a difference in your story. 
if there is some way to we can prove you're falsifying information to us about your business. So all he has to do is believe you lied about anything and he has the right to take everything you have. They justify this by claiming it's not about seizing money. Of course not. It's criminal prosecution, but there's no crime. Forget innocent until proven guilty. That will not apply. They pretend the money committed the crime, not you. This is simply nullifying the Constitution. You have absolutely zero rights. He can rob you of everything and leave you with not even enough money for gas. The police have become the criminals. This is precisely how Rome fell. When they could not pay the army, they began sacking their own cities. This is exactly what the police are doing now, and there is nobody to defend us against this new criminal organization. Just stay out of Oklahoma, out of all costs. If other states follow, you better migrate to another country and fast. Look for a country not based on common law. This will destroy the freedom to travel for broke police have become highway criminals with guns. I didn't say that about common law. I just read it. So, yeah, I I don't recall hearing about that too much in the UK. No, no. Yeah, police <laughs> tried that over here. Yeah, there'd be problems. Oh, I imagine, yeah. We, we may not have guns, but they don't have that many either. Um. <laughs> yeah, you know, honestly, that's kind of the fucked up thing they forget. Some people are going to die yeah. if if they do stupid shit, but you don't have enough bullets to kill everybody. Of course, yet again, it's kind of stupid on the part of the police. All it would take would be one really clever technology hacker to deliberately get himself pulled over. Okay. They'd scan his pre-prepared cards, which would put a virus into their system and completely fuck it up. Not that I'm condoning any such <laughs> action, obviously. But yeah, barcode readers, yeah, not, not a good way to be... Yeah, you shouldn't have mobile machines for your... You know, I, it, I just... It, I, I, I would hope it <laughs> happens, but obviously I can't condone if it did. Um, you can't? Which, shit, I think we should be calling Anonymous. Hello, Anonymous, are you in Oklahoma? Yeah, can, can you, you prepare help me? a couple of credit cards? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Exactly. Um, we so need you to I... change the metal, you know, the strip on the back. Because, <laughs> yeah, because, yeah it's, it's perfectly... Here's a good thing for you. Do you know it's perfectly legal to buy those the the, the card reading machinery? Right. Anyone can do it. Mm -hmm. Programming it—that's a different matter. But yeah, yeah, anyone can get hold of them. There's a TV. You'll you'll love this. There's a mm -hmm. TV program when I was growing up. Uh huh. Um, it was on these edgy new shows that was supposed to be for the, the teenagers. <laughs> And they did a lie, it was it was filmed live, and live they showed you how to copy a credit card. <laughs> so they had the machine, they had the guy with the computer, one of the hosts gave him the card and he went, yeah, well, you just swipe it here, that gets the information, <laughs> and you just do this on the computer, and you have a blank card with a bit of videotape, you remember videotape? Yeah. glued to the back of it just a piece of plastic with a bit of videotape glued to the back of it copied the, in copied the information onto the blank card <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> hey. just, yeah, that's why pin numbers came in um, <laughs> that's, yeah. what, 
Because it used literally, it used to be that easy to copy a credit card. Well, you know, I don't know. Because you know they'd already know, you know, criminals had already noticed. Mm -hmm. People weren't checking the signatures. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, you're supposed to, if it's for $20 or more, you're supposed to. Other than that, they don't really give a crap anymore, allegedly. So. And now all the banks are discussing how to have something better than PIN numbers. Well, Which is I a think, problem, because it I has to be simple. Well, I think banks are going to wind up... I think we're going to move off the currency you see us using. I think we're going, you know, completely binary i think it's all going to be in machines um if you were smart you invested in bitcoin because blockchain blockchain technology does a lot more than you give it credit for and it can do a lot more than you give it credit for and i don't know i'm not saying it's infallible because it's not but uh, no. bitcoin increases in value because money is the one thing that I think you and I agree it's not real. It's only real because you believe in it. It's like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. It has no value. Um, having read a good number of economic books, one of the better economic books uh, I read was written by a man from the UK who talked about ethical capitalism in a time before it was ever thought of as a thing. And his theory was that the money is not what you think it is. Human capital, that's you. Your productive ability over your lifetime is your money. So in essence, you are money you are the wealth of nations um and like i said whatever we use to trade with one another is not really real money it could be silver it could be gold it could be bitcoin it could be zeros and ones it could be stuff on a card it could be an iou none of that is real what is real is your ability to be productive you are your own money basically okay or you're a politician no i'm not a politician <laughs> no no i mean you, you, you your money is you know product of your work or you're a politician politician <laughs> yeah well you know the more i see the representatives of the public the more i like my dog okay i said we would talk about uh, stingrays because you know there's nothing we like here more than that, is there? <laughs> Do you want the music? Please. Action! We are about to launch Stingray! Anything can happen in the next half hour. Ever. I've got to tell you, I don't think anybody thought a child's puppet show would have a... <laughs> it's not a puppet show. It's a super marionation show. 
Sure. I don't think anybody ever would have thought that the music for that would be used in this podcast. I sure didn't. <laughs> it's perfect, though. That was a perfect choice. Thank you, Mary. Uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police surveilled thousands of innocent Canadians for a decade. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police has been using mass surveillance devices known as IMSI catchers in public for a decade. In that time, the police have indiscriminately surveilled potentially thousands of Canadians without their knowledge and stored that information for later use. Motherboard and Vice News obtained more than 3,000 pages of court documents that were produced as part of a case centering around a 2010 RCMP drug bust that unveiled a Montreal Mafia slaying codenamed Project Clemenza. Thanks to those documents, Canadians are finally getting a peek into RCMP's use of mobile device identifiers. The police's charm for an IMSI catcher. So stingray. On Friday, some of those men who pleaded guilty in that case that sprang from Clemenza are being sentenced in a Quebec court. The documents that reveal the RCMP cut corners and training officers on how to use mass surveillance devices and routinely surpassed even U.S. federal police in their embrace of the technology by retaining surveillance data after an investigation is concluded. IMSI catchers essentially act like fake cell towers. They force every phone in range, which may be up to two kilometers away, to connect and communicate information such as the handset's unique ID, the ID of the phone's SIM card, and carrier and country of origin. Some IMSI catchers are capable of intercepting texts and phone calls. IMSI catchers are indiscriminate. They act more like a dragnet than a targeted surveillance tool. And one can imagine how many innocents may be surveilled when an IMSI catcher is deployed in a bustling city center. Although the use of IMSI catchers in police by police in the U.S. is well known, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police has been remarkably guarded about revealing its capabilities to the public. The technology is so privacy invasive that it is essential we be given enough information to ensure that it is only being used lawfully and with respect to our charter's rights, said Brendan McFell, director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association's Surveillance Project. Only then can we have a real debate about the benefits to public safety are at all proportionate to the profound privacy risks presented by this technology. In the past decade, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police has expanded its IMSI catcher program and increased its surveillance capabilities. The federal force has not filed a single privacy assessment to the Office of Privacy Commissioner. The nation's federal privacy watchdog, a spokesman for the commissioner, told Motherboard. Despite efforts on the part of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Crown to suppress information related to the use of IMSI catchers in Project Clemenza, the documents nonetheless paint the picture of a surveillance program that likely grew too fast for its own good and raise serious questions about how police subvert Canadians' privacy. Extensive redirections in court documents related to the Clemenza case make it somewhat difficult to construct detailed timelines of the IMSI catcher program but it's clear that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police's adoption of advanced mass surveillance techniques began years ago. The RCMP's first IMSI catcher was purchased in 2005, according to testimony from the RCMP peace officer, Jocelyn Fortin. Between 2006 and 2007, officers were trained to operate the devices at so-called controlled sites. But early use of the surveillance tech wasn't just limited to test sites. Testimony indicates the RCMP received permission to use them in public for training purposes. 
In 2011, the RCMP purchased another IMS eye-catcher device, which was delivered in 2012. Officers received an additional three days of vendor training in spring of that year. Some devices may cost anywhere from tens of thousands of dollars to over $100,000. Forkin testified that in 2014, the RCMP was good to go on two more products. Redactions make it unclear whether the products in question were IMS eye catchers, but the context of the comments, IMS eye catcher procurement suggests as much. It's impossible to say how many IMS eye catchers the RCMP currently has. However, these documents, which cover events up to mid-2020, 15, paint the picture of a wide-ranging program. Our working theory was that originally these devices were used in limited and extreme cases, said Tamir Israel, a lawyer for the Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic, which is based at the University of Ottawa. Now we're seeing them become tools of general use. Clearly, they've been planning for some time to use them for day-to-day -day mass policing. Officer Forkin identified testified that he has personally operated IMS eye catchers in over 30 different operations and on over 50 different subjects. Testimony from Officer Mark Flynn in 2015 also reveals that at the time the RCMP maintained a large facility in an undisclosed location for Fortin to test and determine how IMS eye catcher functions and how to develop the methodologies that the RCMP would employ. Officer Josh Risdale, an IMS eye catcher operator, testified that he had 300 working hours operating the equipment at field and that he personally has operated an IMS eye catcher device at a range of two kilometers. Risdale also revealed two previously unknown uses of IMS eye catchers in Canada. One was deployed at range of two kilometers in a rural area near a firing range, although the exact location is unclear. Any cell phones in the area would have been forced to connect to the RCMP's device and send identifying information to the police. In another case, an IMS eye catcher was deployed in Toronto to find a missing elderly man who was discovered dead in a field. Exactly when these events occurred is not known. The RCMP possesses and uses specialized tools and techniques under lawful authority in the execution of criminal investigations. RCMP spokesperson Sergeant Harold Fighter told Motherport in an email, all of our investigations are directed at supporting public safety and are targeted, limited, specific, proportionate, and lawfully authorized by an independent judiciary. But the device used in Project Clemenza was, by definition, not specific or targeted. The IMSI catcher's main function is to scan an area for any phones and collect the device ID, SIM card, carrier, country of origin, and phone manufacturer. The IMSI catcher does not discriminate between innocent and guilty. Although the RCMP avoid conducting readings while driving or in crowded areas like malls, Officer Richdale testified that's not to say that the RCMP wouldn't do a reading in those areas. In the case of Project Clemenza, the defense argued that it's clear that at times thousands of innocent third parties were surreptitiously surveilled by the RCMP. Court filings show that the RCMP deployed IMSI catchers at a range of one kilometer during Project Clemenza. Any phones within that kilometer radius would have had potentially identifying information swept up in the dragnet. The IMSI used in Project Clemenza did not intercept content of any communications, but the RCMP surveillance abilities have grown with the increasing technical capability of IMSI catcher devices themselves. Now, some devices are capable of actually intercepting the content of text or voice communication. Um, okay. 
the RCMP has received numerous requests from the public and journalists about the use of IMS eye catchers, and they've routinely refused to produce these documents, or they've claimed they simply don't exist, said Christopher Parsons, a researcher at the University of Toronto's based Citizens Lab. We know now, flatly, that isn't the case. We know there are a large number of documents, and they stretch across the RCMP. Court documents reveal not just a large-scale RCMP surveillance program using IMS eye catchers, but a program that may have grown too fast for its own good. Around 2010, according to testimony from Peace Officer Fortkin, the RCMP was losing IMS eye catcher operators and taking on new staff at a rapid rate. At this point, Fortkin and his skills with IMS eye catchers were already being stretched thin by the RCMP's demands. I was getting called many times to operate the equipment on different operations across the country, Fortkin said. They gave the list of certified operators to the different specialty sections across the county that they should call before calling me or calling our office to get an operator for the system. The demand for resources led the RCMP to take certain shortcuts in training officers to be IMSI catcher operators, these documents show. According to Forkin, the original round of IMSI catcher operators was given a full week of training on the theory and practice of how to operate these devices. But during Clemenza, the demand for new operators was so high that we couldn't provide the full week of training for new employees, he testified. Instead, officers were trained on the job, in the field, and on ride-alongs with fellow officers. Officers testified that there is no standard for note-taking on the part of operators in the field, and IMSI catcher testing may not have resulted in any formal reports either. This despite troubling findings, such as the fact that IMSI catchers prevent devices in range from making 911 calls, something Officer Flynn testified was only discovered through the RCMP's own testing. Everyone should be seriously concerned about officers who have not received formal classroom training going out and using devices that disrupt the ability of people to make emergency calls, says Christopher Savoyan the American ACLU chief's technologist. Impressed about the quality of training, Forkin testified he didn't fail any IMSI catcher operations, and that when training is done, everybody is able to operate the equipment. Forkin said some operators were not up to snuff, but he blamed this on the operators themselves and not their training. Um, in one chilling instance, Officer Richards, Richdale, told the court, if I were to use an IMSI catcher in this courtroom, and I conducted a reading right now, and everyone had a cellular device, identifying information from all the cellular devices would be obtained and kept in our database. There was a lot more, but I figured that was sickening enough for now. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can... Every government is probably oh, using them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's of course they are. It, it is quite hilarious when you look at, obviously it's Canada, so similar laws to here, mm -hmm. where in America they, they've, they're basically still denying the usage as much as they can. Whereas mm -hmm. in Canada, of course, <laughs> they ask the relevant authority and it's like, no, no, we can't tell you about that. So then they just bring <laughs> some of the police into court and ask them. Yeah, and, exactly. of course, they just tell the truth. Because yeah. they're not under any uh, government control. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yes, it's probably smart of the... Uh, smart of the investigators to actually call in some of the 
the officers themselves rather than well, I mean, relying on their superiors. There's no one else you could call. Yeah. Really? Um, yeah, because if you call her boss, he's just going to deny stuff, same as he's been told to do. Oh, but, exactly. But, yeah, the officers aren't under that obligation, so they're nope. just going to tell the truth. Yep. Okay, I said we would talk about something called Score Assured. And I think we've talked about this before, but I think people might not remember it. So, a creepy startup will help landlords, employers, and online dates strip mine intimate details from your Facebook page. There's a scene in the dystopian sci-fi novel Ready Player One in which the protagonist glimpses the dossier of personal information a major tech company has gathered on him. It includes his height and weight, his browser history, his address, even several years of school transcripts. We're still several years away from that vision, thankfully, but a new British startup called Score Assured has taken a big step in that direction. The company wants to, in the words of co-founder Steve Thornhill, take a deep dive into private social media profiles and sell what it finds there to everyone from prospective dates to employers and landlords. Its first product, Tenant Assured, is already live. After your would-be landlord sends your request through the service, you're required to grant it full access to your Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and or Instagram profiles. From there, Tenant Assured scrapes your site activity, including entire conversation threads and private messages, runs it through natural language processing and other analytic software, and finally spits out a report that catalogs everything from your personality to your financial stress level. My personal tenant report includes a list of my closest friends and interests, a percentage breakdown of my personality traits, a list of every time I've tweeted the words loan and pregnant, and the algorithm's confidence that I'll pay the rent consistently. If you're living a normal life, Thornhill reassures me, then frankly, you have nothing to worry about. In fact, Thornhill sees his product as empowering both landlords and tenants, the former to make more informed decisions about whom they rent to and spot lies on applications, the latter to make a fuller, more accurate picture of themselves that might be available in a credit card background check. But I'm still pretty worried, acutely so. It's old news, of course, that people in positions of authority, landlords, hiring managers, college admissions counselors, you name it, increasingly scope out social media as part of standard background checks, but score assured with its reliance on algorithmic models and its demand that users share complete account access is something decidedly different from the sort of social media audits we're used to seeing. Those are a cursory quality control check. This is more analogous to data strip mining. It's not the amount of detailed data that's problematic either. Tenant assured reports include information such as whether you've mentioned a pregnancy and how old you are, which are both protected statuses under the U.S. housing discrimination law. All we can do is give them the information, Thornhill said. It's up to landlords to do the right thing. Meanwhile, unlike credit reports, which you may under federal law request every 12 months, Tenant Assured doesn't give users any way to view their ratings or dispute misleading data. Make no mistake, the data will mislead. Among the behaviors that count against your Tenant Assured credit percentage, i.e. how confident the company is that you'll pay, are online retail social logins and frequency of social logins used for leisure activities. 
In other words, TenetSure draws conclusions about your creditworthiness based on things such as whether you post about shopping or going out on the weekends. Thornhill's response to these criticisms is that TenetSure asks permission before it does any analysis. In that way, he argues it's not much different from a background check or credit rating. Of course, we have consumer protection laws to regulate both those things, in large part because they have such an outsized impact on consumers. Regulators have also recognized that although such checks may technically opt in, they're effectively not optional for those who don't have the luxury of only choosing landlords, jobs, or loans that don't require them, or who work in industries or live in areas where such checks are standard practice. This is the early days, of course, and Tenet Assured is only source assured first product. By the end of July, the company expects to be offering specialized versions of the Surface to everyone from employers and HR departments to parents shopping around for nannies. Someday, Thornhill imagines you won't hire a dog sitter or book an air nib without first viewing their social media dossier as compiled by his company. There's always the possibility that it won't catch on, of course, or that, as has happened when other companies infringed on private online spaces, consumers will rebel. But Thornhill is pretty unconcerned. People will give up their privacy to get something they want, he said. Sadly, he's kind of right. Mm -hmm. Also, yeah, I think he's in for a surprise. He's going to lose his company. Well, he's going to lose his technology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the government. Yeah, he's based in the UK. That, that's his first mistake. Yeah. <laughs> he's, the government could just take his stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're uh, breaking such and such data protection laws. Law. Uh, and he then spends the rest of his life uh, trying to fight in court. And he doesn't have the money for that. No, I wouldn't think so. Yeah. Not unless he knows some of the politicians, but yeah. But yeah, it's data mining. It's, well, it's, it's, it's all over. Well, it's it's called scraping the backbone. Yeah. Right? I mean, this isn't data mining. Data mining is something else. Data mining is stripping down a person. This is... Yeah, again, he's, his, his, his product is going to hit all sorts of problems with all the hackers. Mm. Well, I mean, but this is this is the kind of thing the NSA wants to do to scrape the internet backbone. Yep. I mean, and if he's found a way to scrape the internet backbone of individual users, it's not going to be long before. Oh boy. Um, does anybody remember Captain America: The Winter Soldier, <laughs> where he says the 20th century is a book, and Zola has taught him how to read the book. Yeah. Um, this is kind of what it is. Everything you put on social media tells something about you. Um, well, I mean, Facebook and Google are already doing this, so yeah. Well, yeah, but it's different to know your employer can purchase the service. You know, it was bad enough when it was just Google, the government, and, you know, everyone else, you know, who was peripherally involved. This is worse knowing that it's now a service you can purchase. For some yeah. reason, I've, I find it a thousand times more offensive than I find what the government's doing because I don't think the government thinks I'm special or thinks that they have to chase me around or, or anything like that. Uh, this is just what they do because they're fucking lazy. 
Yeah. I would be I would be unsurprised though if Facebook don't find a way of blocking his nice software. I would really kind of They really don't like third party shit messing <laughs> up their, messing about in their systems. Yeah. Similarly so... the other social media sites, I think un unless he unless he's willing to pay very large fees, I don't <laughs> think he's gonna get very far with it. Uh you, you never know, but I'm sure the government will find a handy-dandy use for it. Oh, yeah. So, okay. Um, this is funny. This is about the Air Force. Air Force has lost 100,000 Inspector General records. That's, that, uh, that's confidence-inspiring there. The Air Force announced on Friday that it has lost thousands of records belonging to the Service Inspector General due to a database crash. We estimate we've lost information for 100,000 cases dating back to 2014, Air Force spokesperson Anna Stefanik told The Hill in an email. The database crashed and there is no data, Stefanik said. At this time, we don't have any evidence of malicious intent. The database, called the Automated Case Tracking System, ACTS, holds all the records related to IG complaints, investigations, appeals, and Freedom of Information Act requests. The exception is senior official data, which is maintained in a separate database, the Air Force said in a statement. We will also use acts to track a congressional constituent inquiry. The Air Force said it was notified on June 6 by a contractor that administrators that administrates the database of the records that the data within was corrupted, according to a statement. The Air Force has launched an investigation to determine the cause of the crash and is aggressively trying to recover the lost data and determine the severity of the loss. Well, gee, isn't that just terrible that um, if you filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the United States Air Force, it's gone. Yeah, they're really, really good at technology, aren't they? <laughs> it's scary, isn't it? Right, right. I, I have multiple websites. All of them mm -hmm. back up automatically well, every here's, morning. Sure. Here's the thing. It's not like they can't just go over here and knock on the NSA's door and go, Hey, you know, all that stuff you've got, some of it's ours. Can we get copies of it back? Yeah. <laughs> so it's just, it's ridiculous whenever they say, Oh, the data's corrupted. It's gone. It's gone. It's, it's just... I don't know. It's not believable anymore. At, at, yeah. which, at which point, you know, when you get something like this happen, mm -hmm. everyone, all the senior officers involved, because it's right. the Air Force, mm -hmm. fired, no pension. Because <laughs> this is gross misconduct. This is yeah. almost the same as treason. I mean, mm -hmm. they have not done their job. Uh-huh. Court exactly. marshals all round, folks. Because, <laughs> shit, if you can't do your job, yeah. Yeah, I agree. But no, no, they never do that. No. No. Well, there have been a few cases of people getting booted out over stuff like this, but very, very few. Well, I mean, once you take and you give all the power of the government to the subcontractors and, and you, you create the deep state... You can't be responsible anymore. You're the front man. Somebody else is actually responsible for all this stuff, and it's not you. So yeah, who do you prosecute? But, but that's why they shouldn't be allowed 
to farm out these contracts. Um, many, many, if, um, there's quite a few Western nations where literally it would be illegal for the military to use third parties. Oh, well, to control you know, their data systems. Hey, Poppy Bush came up with the idea, so what the hell? We'll yeah, I mean, the UK, the UK does it a little bit, but not for any of the vital systems, because <laughs> they're, yeah, they're not stupid. Um, it's like, just... you know, we want full control of our really important <laughs> shit. Well, <laughs> yeah. you know. General, I just thought that was really interesting. That was from Defense One. I read Defense One a lot. Um, yeah. Not because I like it, but because I think stories like that are really interesting, and they're not stories you're going to hear about anymore. Well, at least in one way it's good, because they've actually come clean with and, and, and announced it. They had to. You know, a yeah, but, but a lot of times in the past, people have tried to cover this shit up. And well, they were being investigated yeah. for it. It's kind of hard to yeah. cover it up when you're being investigated for it. So, I mean, it, the story is larger than what it looks like on paper. Oh I'll yeah. Oh no no, it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's kind of a really big deal. Um, whether or not you know it. What All just UFO happened... nuts must be going crazy. Yeah, but those it's thousands not... of information requests <laughs> I put in about all that strange air activity, the Vulcan. I... It's a conspiracy. <laughs> it's like it's not that. It's something. <laughs> it's something else. There is larger fuckery at foot. Let's yeah. be honest. Larger than usual fuckery is afoot when shit like this happens but it's not what you think it is no it's something else so which begs the question what were they investigating that was so important they were willing to let hundreds of thousands of documents just go away i'm telling you it's not ufos <laughs> so i guess all oh, right it's it's not ufos it's the it's the um it's the empty folder it, it's the, yeah, the hollow earth people, yeah. <laughs> no. Nope, no, it's not that either. You sure? Pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's not them or the reptilian overlords, because, you know, I don't wear a purple tracksuit, and uh, last time I checked, I was pretty sane. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's it for this evening. Um, I hope you all had a good time. I know I didn't, but that's the news, folks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I guess um, Muppets first and then advert. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in-stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Thanks, thanks for listening, guys. And uh, Vary and I, and quite possibly Alex, uh, we'll see you next Monday. Same bad time, same bad channel. Thanks. <laughs>